mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. And thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started, as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasos. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is a small business owner, a pilot, and a native of San Lorenzo, New Mexico, where he works with his family in their bakery and restaurant. If you've been to Las Cruces Farmer's Market on a Saturday morning during the past 15 years or so, you've seen Benjamin Coffey running the Living Harvest Bakery booth. Benjamin, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's nice did, to be here. Did I get all that right? Are you an, actually a native of San Lorenzo, or were you born somewhere else? Well, I'm not exactly a native. I was born in Durango, Colorado, but I got here as soon as I could. I was only two years old when I moved here. So I like how you put that, as soon as you could. Just as soon as I could. New Mexico is amazing, and it's it definitely is home for me. Well, how was your flight to Las Cruces? It was a little interesting, dealing with a little bit of weather, but uh, nothing we haven't seen or dealt with before, and it was good and safe, which is what we're looking for. So it was a pleasant flight overall. Now, my understanding is... Uh, I lived in Silver City, actually, for nine months back in 1998 and 1999. Uh, if I remember correctly, there are three airports. There's the Grant County, the Whiskey Creek, and... Uh, Turner Ridgeport is probably what you're thinking of. That is closed now. Okay. Um, Whiskey Creek and Grant County are still operational. Grant County Field is your primary. Whiskey Creek is a little bit... doesn't have fuel, doesn't have services of any kind, so it's just basically... More a private a, landing strip? Um, I don't believe it's private. I don't actually know on that who owns Whiskey Creek. Um, but it's just basically a piece of asphalt <laughs> okay, <laughs> with some hangers next and to it. And which one do you use? Grant County Field. There, there we have hangers, we have fuel, we have the FBO. Um, advanced um, air flies in and out of there three times, three or four times a day, two flights to Albuquerque, one flight to Phoenix, something like that. They change it up every now and then. And if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while. It's going to be right on the other side of the highway from Hurley. Kind of yeah, in that area? yeah okay. it's, a, it's about, what is it, three miles, four miles south of Hurley, south and a little bit west of Hurley. Okay, and how, how far a drive is that from your from your home? Uh, 30 minutes. About I'm in the valley, minutes. which is about a 30-minute drive from the airport. So Now, do you come, see, the one time we were at your restaurant, we came from Silver City and we came from, you, you turned right off by... You came uh, out of Silver on 180 and then you hit 152. To get and, back on Like as if you were heading over the Black Range. and Wh- um, Which way you, do you go to get to... So I take uh, 35 is is the road that goes up towards the cliff dwelling, so 35 for like a mile, okay. and then 152 into um, Hanover. And then there's a little little known junction road, 356, that's a little hop over to Baird, and then a left out of Baird down through Hurley into the airport. So it's a... Okay, maybe that's the way we went. It's um, not a route that a lot of people are familiar with. 356 gets completely overlooked unless you're familiar with the area. <laughs> and that's probably why you take it. Exactly. <laughs> to avoid all that Friday night Grant the only, traffic. The only traffic you get is if you hit a mine, mine shift change. Right. Uh, the mine, Freeport-McMoran, um, uses that road heavily. And so you'll get behind a copper truck, and that kind of sucks. But <laughs> Now, your, your family runs a bakery and a restaurant. Correct. Um, and, I would, I, and I know that you probably have spent a lot of time working with that. How did the pilot thing start? Pilot thing started when I was eight years old. A friend of mine, uh, Brian O'Flynn, 
uh, just moved to the area. He was getting used to the airspace and everything, doing some flights, and he invited me to fly with him one day from Casas Adobe's Field, which is a little gravel strip basically in my front yard, uh, over to Grant County Field to grab some fuel. And, and on the little 10-minute hop or whatever it was from between those two airports, he said, hey, Ben, you want to take the controls? And I was like, yeah, heck yeah. Eight years and old. Eight years old. And I grabbed hold of that yoke, and you know, he had it trimmed out. I didn't know that at the time, but he had it nice trimmed out. It wasn't doing anything crazy, but it was sitting there twitching under my hands, and I could feel it, and I could feel the air moving over this little tiny airframe, and it was just like, that is exactly what I want to do. That is career path right there. That's where I'm going. <laughs> and so you, you get your first taste at, 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 at eight, eight years, years old. old. Maybe when do you start logging? Logging miles, if you will, like official miles. Right. Logging hours in your logbook, right. sure. So, you know, time and money are the two, the two drivers when it comes to aviation. And so it wasn't until I was 24 that, um, that I had both of those things enough in line that I could start actually thinking about it and moving forward. And the whole time, um, obviously you need to fly with somebody who has uh, at least at some, to some degree, uh, a level of certica- certification higher than yours. Sure. Um, CFI, Certified Flight Instructor, is okay. who you're going to train with. Um, that can be just a CFI or a CFII, which is instrument rated, um, so they can teach instruments, but the CFII doesn't really come in until later in your training. The lady I trained with, uh, Linda Peacott, great CFI out of Grant County Field, but she uh, is just a CFI, is, is what her ratings were. She has a couple thousand hours, which is great. Unbelievably good pilot. And is this the same person you have flown with? The entire time, or she did my entire private training, um, and then I haven't haven't moved on to um, since she wasn't a double I. I'm I'm going to other instructors to work work with my um, work on my instrument rating because she's not qualified to teach that. I wish she was because we got along really well in the cockpit and everything. Now, how does the how does it? Uh, obviously, you have to pay somebody for their services training you. Yep. Um, is 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 you know fuel and flight fuel. time included in that, or is that a separate? How does De- that all work? Depends on how how your how your training is is structured. Part sixty one, part ninety one, part one forty one. Flight school. Um, I've trained under part um, ninety one, which is private instructor. So it's basically like a private tutor. And so I had aircraft rental, I had fuel for the aircraft, and I had instructor expenses. And I forget what all those numbers were. She was charging me forty five an hour. Uh, airplane was one thirty five, and then whatever you were burning in fuel. So. Somewhere in the vicinity of one fifty to two hundred dollars an hour was what I was budgeting for that, and those those numbers vary drastically across the country, and and you just that's just where I was at the time, and fuel prices have changed drastically since I trained. That it's it, that, and that's obviously not something that's cheap, uh, you know, unless you're a really wealthy person, but. What what has been a bigger impediment to you getting, say, getting your your full license or where you are today faster? Maybe five years ago, is it is it the cost or is it the fact that you have other responsibilities like helping with the family business, doing school? Uh, and we'll get into maybe later. I know you've been involved with some uh, volunteer firefighting. Correct. Um, correct. W- what's a combination of that? If if there was one thing you had to say uh, that has caused it to drag out this long, what would it be? Uh, lifestyle really, uh, time, time is a, is a, was a bigger hindrance to me because they can save up money. You know, you can squirrel away money. And, uh, I spent 10,000, which is really not that bad on my private license. I got a scholarship from Grant County Pilot Association that deferred 2000 of that. So I really only had 8,000 out of pocket, which when you think about it, eh, anyone pretty much can save up eight grand given yeah. long enough. And so 
you, but you can't do that with time. You can't squirrel away time. And when you start to train, the conventional wisdom is you want to be in that airplane three times a week if you can. Four would be better. Uh, if you could train every day, pretty much that would be awesome. But um, you're you're losing you're losing ground. If you're training once a week, it's going to take you a year or longer generally to complete your private. And so you want to train three times a week. So it's you can't set that time in a, in the bank. You can't put right. that time in the bank and save it up per se. And so that was actually harder for me to figure out was how to fly three times a week than it was to save up the money. So that was just, just personal. You can, you can do that and kind of go through a crash course and take a month off or whatever and go, okay, I'm going to train for a month and pass my private. What's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is to get paid to fly an airplane, a commercial pilot. Commercial so, as in passenger or, or commercial passenger, cargo? medevac cargo. Basically at this point in my career, the aviation industry changes so fast, it's really hard to say where I'll be in 10, 20 years because you you take you jump on the opportunities that come your way. A lot, the aviation world is really small, and so it really comes down to a lot on who you know and who recommends you and what kind of recommendations and what your logbook looks like when the right person sees it. And so you're going to, at least for me, I'm going to jump at the first opportunity your first break and it's probably a cargo company or something like that that their their risk profile is a little bit lower they can handle a little bit lower time pilot essentially right out of flight school 250 hours with a commercial no one's going to hire you so most guys grab their cfi add that rating to it and the only person that's going to fly with them is a student so they're self-employed for from 250 hours to 500 hours at 500 hours there's a little bit of a breakover point and they'll some of your cargo companies will start to look at your resume and say, okay, we can pick this guy up. Well, I have to tell you, you know, when you and I were, were talking about you getting here and what day would be best for you, I think, you know, we talked about, I, I just assumed Saturday because you guys are here for a good chunk of the day. Uh, but you said, no, no, we can do it. We can do a Friday. I'm just going to fly myself out here. Right. And, and uh, you know, that kind of, that kind of surprised me a little bit. You were kind of cavalier about that. And it just kind of, it's just a thing I do and I fly and I'll come to Las Cruces. Uh, how long is the flight? 38 minutes is today was the, uh, it can, it varies on weather, and uh, today we had a one-knot tailwind, so it was 38 minutes and, you know, be closer to an hour. Going home this evening, it'll probably be closer to an hour because we'll be bucking a pretty good headwind. But right. there, I was I was way down, you know, down for a 38-minute flight. A two-hour drive was just going to really bother me. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, when you're not flying, obviously, you're doing what um, I think most people here in Las Cruces would associate you, and that is you're, you're manning and uh, taking charge of the Living Harvest Bakery uh, booth at the Las Cruces Farmers and Crafts Market on Saturday mornings. Um, my understanding, and of course, you know, done a little bit of research. You guys had a website up at one time. Uh, you were good enough to give me a pamphlet. My understanding uh, from talking to you and doing my research is your, your philosophy behind what you guys do and how you, you mill your wheat and the whole process isn't anything necessarily, I don't want to say novel or out of the ordinary. I think most people who know anything about nutrition know that white flour and white flour tortillas and white bread tastes really, really good. It does. They taste like candy, but they're not the best thing for you. Right. Um, right. And that's, I, I, I'm going to go off, off the deep end here because I get really excited about this stuff. White, the, the, the white flour is really not all of that bad. If it was literally fresh ground and then sifted like they used to do, where you're you're milling it through a stone mill, so you're grinding the whole grain up and then you're running it through a series of sieves to make that white flour to get it all the way down to the endosperm, essentially. 
that white flour really wasn't all that bad for you. It still had vi- traces of vitamin E oil in it. It still had a little bit of middlings, a little bit of your vitamins and minerals that kind of help your body know how to digest that wheat. You know, it's not something brand new. Where we really made the mistake, in my opinion, is when we started roller milling it and we're separating this grain apart into its constituents so that they're pure, almost. And you're, you're left with nothing but the endosperm. And then you're bleaching that to get it as white as possible. And it's at that point, you, you're, you're left with nothing other than the vital wheat protein, the endosperm of the grain, and you're over-strengthening that with artificial strengtheners. And at that point, your body goes, a oh, piece out. I don't know what to do with this almost plastic substance. Processed. That's processed, highly processed. And so your, your old-fashioned white flour, if you could still get a hold of that, ah, that stuff was great. Man, it tasted amazing. It was and amazing. It was good for you. And it wasn't wasn't good for you but it wasn't going to kill you either like the stuff we're eating now (laughs) right so so what is um if you can sum up obviously you could probably talk for weeks about it good if you could sum up what is the living harvest bakery philosophy on your product and how on on the digestive system and how we pass bread right grains through it right so so to, to create a bread that you can build a lifestyle around is essentially what we set out to do so, you know, your honey wheat recipe it has six ingredients in it. It's fresh ground. It goes from wheat in the bag that we get directly from the farmer to a loaf of bread in about an hour. It's as minimally processed as we can get. And it's, it's the, the goal with that, with that bread was to make a bread, a sandwich bread, a toasting bread, a breakfast bread, whatever you want to use it for, a hot dog, a hamburger that you could build your life around that your body wasn't 25 years later going to go, oh, we're, we're allergic to this now. We can't, we can't do this anymore. We're, we're tired of dealing with the crap that you're feeding us. So Now, the, the, the beginning of this, again, if I remember correctly, years ago, um, I learned from your website, family kind of got in this because your mom had some digestive issues. Yeah, she well, yes and no. She had a, a few health issues, but that wasn't really the the driving force behind it. She just enjoyed making bread. Okay. So she ba- the basic we've tweaked the honey wheat recipe a little bit since then, but um basically she had the honey wheat recipe and that's what she made for my dad. She'd make him dinner rolls and send him send him off with him to work and you know, eat one of those and they're amazing filling, throw some almond butter, honey in there good protein, whatever. And, you know, you can run on that for an afternoon. And so that was, that was, that was mom's co- contribution in the, in the very essence of it. And wh- wh- what kind of work was your dad doing at the time? At the time he was a subcontractor for La Plata Electric in Durango, Colorado, which is, he was reading meters, electric meters. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and how did that evolve into running a small business? So that, that's a, a long story whom my dad would be much more qualified than I am to <laughs> to relate, but um, I'll, well, I'll give it, have, it a shot here. <laughs> does it have anything to do with some of the stuff we, we, we talked about a little bit on the way here um, with your family's move to southern New Mexico? Yeah, yeah, that was that was primary there. So Okay, so let's let's get into that. Get into that, sure. So we were um, part of a very closed sect of the Churches of Christ. Don't really expect you to be familiar with that. Known by what who they didn't associate with, not who they associate with, which is as as backwards as you can get, essentially. <laughs> you call this, is this Communities of Christ, you said? Churches of Christ. Churches of Christ, yeah. okay. Churches of Christ, really, really conservative branch of Church of Christ. And uh, my parents were running away from that, kind of said, this is this can't this can't be right. And so they were kind of looking for a lifestyle that was more free, a faith that was more free. And uh, basically, to 
put it bluntly, jumped out of the frying pan into the fire, so came down to Members, New Mexico to associate with a group that at the time they didn't realize was Mennonite. And um, there were it was really just a melting pot. It wasn't actually Mennonite. The roots of it were Mennonite, but um, the, the core people behind it were Mennonite. But there were a, it was attracting a ton of diverse backgrounds, which is a good thing, but it, it makes for a bomb. <laughs> and, and about three months after we got here, the group just disintegrated. It blew up. <laughs> okay. And then, so mom and dad had run away from their parents and kind of gotten cut off and written out of the will, essentially, and, you know, said, okay, you go do you, and uh, we don't really want to hear from you. Grandkids come along and really change that, thing, God. But that's kind of where they were, out of money and stuck. And so another family that was from that group, Dad and Ira Byler, who he started the bakery with, were sitting around going, well, what can we do? And Ira said, well, Amy makes this great bread. Is there something we can we can do with this? Let's start a bakery. And so had a play shed. <laughs> And they started the bakery in a little tiny play shed, which was right. mind blowing. But uh, they did it, and it was it was hard for three or four years. As you know, moved from a play shed imagine. into a, a bigger shed, and from a bigger shed to a real facility eventually, and and stuff like that. But it was a, a journey. Now, what kind of faith community did your parents leave in in Colorado? The Churches of Christ. That, okay, and essentially went from that community down here that blew up in three months, and then. A really interesting period, kind of a drought in my early formative years where we didn't go to church. Uh, religion, spirituality was a huge part of my parents' lives, and they didn't reject their faith through it. But doing church, doing church right, just wasn't high on the priority list. It Faith is built in community, but we found plenty of community in the valley through the bakery just living life around real people, being real, just waking up every morning, praising our Lord and Savior, and welcoming whoever was around us into our world and sharing Jesus. It was just as simple as that. We didn't need all of the fluff surrounding church, doing church. We were really tired of doing church. <laughs> well, I'll have to tell you, I don't have um, much of an understanding at all of... Uh, I know a little bit about Churches of Christ and... Uh, very tiny bit about Mennonite communities. Yep. One of the things that I know has always been associated with Mennonite communities is a very simple life. Yep. Um, some someone actually told me, uh, and I know they get confused to people who are even less um, less knowledgeable than I am. With another group, we see the Pennsylvania Dutch um, with with Amish. And Amish. Yep. Um, someone even coined the term or, or mentioned the term to me, Amish light. Oh, yeah. Um so I Hor think horse that, and buggy Mennonite black black bumper Mennonite it it's fract fract so many fractions right it can get overwhelming. But what the one thing that seems very very consistent with your lifestyle in San Lorenzo and like I was get what I was saying is my understanding of the Mennonite lifestyle is something that's very simple. Yep. Um semi rural or rural if you I don't know what you consider San Lorenzo. To somebody like me who grew up 10 miles outside of Washington DC it might as well be on the moon. Right. Um, I'm with you there. It's pretty darn rural. I mean, the Aldo Leopold Wilderness and Gila Wildernesses are my backyard. They're my playground. So I, right. I enjoy the ruralness of it. I mean, Members is a community of 800 to 1,000 people, which is pretty small in my books. <laughs> now, do you, do you, is there a church you go to now, or do you uh, worship at home? A couple of different churches that um, we've kind of started going going to just looking for more community. Uh, Harvest Church in Silver and the Church of Christ, which is a much more liberal I guess I should say branch of the Church of Christ that 
is really more non-denominational. So a couple of churches. So there during COVID, I was loving it because a lot of churches went to two services and started doing things online and putting out different expanding into areas of media that they wouldn't have been in. And so I was just loving it. So Sunday morning, I would just get up and I would church all day. <laughs> right. Now, have you been able to draw um, upon anything specific in your faith or anything in Scripture that supports what you're doing uh, with your bakery, nu nutrition-wise? Not not directly, but indirectly. So more anal analogous, analogies. Okay. So Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's... That's something that he, that's a way, an analogy he used, um, and various things like that. Um, and so just the living harvest, we are a living harvest, and just building a lifestyle that promotes healthy living, and healthy living is more than just your body. It's spiritual, it's mental, and if you're feeding it good food, those other things come more naturally. They're more easily done, accomplished. So it's, it's you're, you're starting at, at your base, and and making a good product and then doing it in such a way that it gives you a platform to share your faith. Now you don't just sell bread, obviously. I think you right. know you know me well enough to know there's two two things that I buy from you on the regular. Number one is the muffin, <laughs> number two is the spelt bread. The infamous muffin, yes. But you have um and you and I had a conversation years ago about how many calories you think are each I hope one that, of those. I hope that comes up. That was hilarious. Well I about, I, I, I about something killed I, like, you. I really want to talk about because you really killed <laughs> Killed, killed me there for a few minutes. But um, I'm going to do it again today. I brought you one. You do have cookies. You have um, a big honey bun, sweet cinnamon sweet, roll. Yeah, a big cinnamon yeah. roll. Uh, if I if I remember correctly, you have some some sort of cinnamon or honey, something sweet covered almonds. Yep, the cinnamon roasted nuts. Yep. Now, you've described how you mill your flour and everything like that, and how it's better for how we digest things. Are there better sugars than others? And I would imagine you use those in your sweeter. Yeah, sugar Offerings. is sugar. Uh, it's it's hard to get away from sugar, um, especially when you're developing yeast. Yeast loves sugar, so you can feed it honey, but it doesn't like to eat it as much. The honey kind of attacks the microbe. Um, we used honey for years until we couldn't get honey reasonably enough anymore. And uh, now we're using a raw, unrefined sugar out of Mexico. So it's basically evaporated cane juice. So they okay. squeeze the cane shoot and evaporate the moisture off of it, and it's that's the sugar you're left with. It's cane sugar. There's no so, ifs, ands, or buts about it. <laughs> so if I eat that big, delicious-looking honey bun yeah. that you guys have... It's, there's it's no, not good for you. It okay, so there's, out, no, there's no convincing myself no. because it's from Living Harvest Bakery that Sorry. it's going to be good for me. No, I, I can't lie. It started out as honey wheat bread, which was pretty good, and okay. then we covered that in enough butter to kill you, and then we covered that in enough sugar to kill you, and then hey, we threw some cinnamon die. in there to make it almost okay and try to mo modulate that blood sugar a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's a cinnamon roll, and hey... They taste amazing, but that's if, all you can say for them. <laughs> if I'm going to die an early death, let it be at the hands of Living Harvest Bakery. Right. I mean, it's, um, it's a diabetic coma waiting to happen. <laughs> now, we my first introduction to your product was, um, you know, up until 2010, I worked nights. And my wife would go to the farmer's market on Saturday mornings. And, and I would a lot of times wake up Saturday afternoon, 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, to uh, cranberry muffin. Yep. And um, back then, we, we don't – well – I know why we don't do it anymore because I eat it as soon as I buy it. But she would bring it home. And I would slice it in half, put some butter on it, put it back together, and then microwave it. And um, you amazing. and I had a conversation a number of years ago about... Uh, I think this was a pumpkin chocolate muffin, which is one of my worst. Okay. Not the cranberry. The cranberry would have been a lot better. 
But I think you were asking me about a pumpkin chocolate muffin. <laughs> so, so how? So what is the range? How many calories? No, you have some that are less sweet. There's right, there's like a one, cranberry and a bran muffin, seed lemon one. poppy seeds a little bit pretty lower, mild. pretty much much more mild. Now I think we were talking about a pumpkin chocolate, which is about as many calories as you can punch in pack into a texas size muffin <laughs> it, it, and you're right it is a, it is a good size i like that texas size it's texas it's not, size it's not your standard not little dainty. dinky muffin no it's a meal <laughs> yeah it's 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 plenty good but what, what did you say and of course it's very it would be very expensive for you to for you guys to, f- to figure that out exactly yeah we should we should probably run it through a lab and find out exactly what it is but you know if you take a, a general run-of-the-mill muffin and you start from that point and then you you add the different ingredients, you should wind up somewhere in the vicinity of 600 calories in that muffin, which is mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a huge chunk of a 2,000-calorie diet, if that's what you're doing, or a 3,000-calorie diet. all your carbs for the day. That's all of your carbs Probably right there. for the weekend. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, now, the spelt bread. Spelt bread, yeah. That, well, that's the honey wheat recipe done with spelt grain. Spelt grain is one of your ancient grains. It hasn't been hybrid or crossbred. It's one of your, your pure grains. Dates back to the time of Christ, yada, yada, yada. Um, the unique thing about spelt is it's it's still in a, the cereal grain family but it's gluten digests a little bit differently than wheat gluten and so if you're developing a gluten allergy sensitivity to gluten a lot of times you could switch over to spelt and your body processes it just differently enough that it's not going to you're not going to get the inflammation from I'm it. I'm glad you brought up you brought up gluten allergies because yeah. um I had never heard of it until now, I had heard, I don't know if you're familiar with Kid Rock. He had a sidekick, uh, Joe C., died maybe 10, 15 years ago. Uh, Kid Rock is a kind of a from Detroit, but he's a rapper and he's a rocker. He had a sidekick, Joe C., who, who if you didn't know, would think was a little person with achondroplasia, but apparently he had celiac disease. Oh, yeah. And it, and That's it, the and real it one. stunted his growth. Uh, my wife has a very good friend, one of her best friends uh, she grew up with, has a daughter with celiac disease. And it's become over the last maybe 10, 15 years, you're hearing a lot more about celiac and gluten allergies and you know the so there's, there's a little bit of difference between the celiac and the gluten allergy generally celiac tends to be more genetic and it's it's passed along um not always i don't believe but that one's that's a reaction an anaphylactic reaction to it and there's not you just need to stay away from gluten there's nothing there's no that i'm aware of there's no dietary fix for that whereas your gluten sensitivities and your gluten where you're not reacting to it. it's giving you some inflammation maybe a headache some various other things you know leaky gut syndrome something like that then you can kind of work with that dietarily but celiac is something we don't we if you're celiac don't buy anything from my bakery not even the almond butter because i work in a facility that processes gluten and there's cross-contamination okay. so it's that's, something you take much more seriously that's that's good to know because i've you know every now and again you'll see and you may have even seen this some snarky memes on the internet about uh you know, humans have been eating, eating bread for tens of thousands of years, and right. just now people have invented gluten allergies, but that has more to do with how we've changed how we process food, right? Process food. Well, that's my take on it, and, you know, there's there's going to be pushbacks from, pushback from much more educated people than me on that on that account, but that's certainly the way I, I believe um, that it's it's has much more to do with how you process the gluten than it does the gluten itself. It, cutting out all of your complex proteins, I mean, meat is bad. Eggs are bad. Milk is bad. Butter is bad. Bread is bad. You're you're basically just going through your major food groups. You're more complicated, harder to digest proteins and saying they're bad. At some point, you have to look at it and go, okay, you can't just cut out all of your more complex proteins. There has to be another explanation. And what the explanation I see is a lifestyle, a dietary lifestyle that your body is no longer able to digest these complex proteins. So we need to fix your gut first, which oftentimes 
involves getting rid of a lot of those complex proteins for a time so that your body can rebuild, rebuilding your gut biome so that you can then again digest these more complex proteins. But I don't take a a view of eliminating food groups. You want to expand your food groups. You want to eat a very diverse diet, not a very restrictive diet if you can. It's going to be a process, a journey getting there, but ultimately you want to get all of your vitamins, minerals, nutrients from a huge variety of foods, not a very select variety of foods, and then a whole bunch of supplements. <laughs> well, you... um I just lost my train of thought. No, Sorry, I, that, I, that no, was no, no, a no. lot. I go I, off on a tangent. I know what I was saying. <laughs> no, no. I, I, knew, I think that, um, especially in the information age, I think the general public is open to a lot more things that we weren't, or, or have access to information we didn't have access to before. And there are a lot of people who are into home remedies and non-Western ways of thinking and treating the body. Yep. We had a dog um, from 2001 to 2011 who actually developed three years before he we sent him off um developed a degen he had degenerative disc disease and his back legs kind of stopped working and we took him uh to the veterinarian and that treatment ran its course and then my wife got on the internet and found somebody here locally who's actually not here anymore but uh does chinese you know eastern medicine and i kid you not for the last three years of arnold's life we we took him every six weeks for acupuncture at $90 a pop and Chinese herbs that we gave him daily. And the doctor, I was very skeptical at first, and, and, and the doctor said, look, first of all, he's an animal. He, there's no placebo effect. He doesn't know this is supposed to help him. Well, I'll be damned, but it gave him, it gave him an extra three years of life. And so, you know, I tell you that story because kind of getting back to what I was saying about, you know, there are things that we've we've opened the mind up to things that are non-Western um, I know you believe in what you guys do, and I, and I, I know you've seen results. Is it in line with uh, Western medicine and clinical trials of uh, you know and, and research into you know is, is there is there bio is there biology to, that backs this up, or is it just something that has worked for you, and then you go with it? I'm not smart enough to say there's biology okay. to back it up. I just a lifestyle that I've seen and I've lived. I mean, it's it's I don't I don't say anything that I don't live. And so it's it's what we've done as a family, and we're an extremely healthy family. I mean, right. I go into a little bit of a tangent here, but a couple of my sisters were born at home without a mid midwife, my mom and dad at home, having a kid, perfectly natural. And we had a huge struggle getting them documented, birth certificates, a social security number, because they didn't see the doctor for the first 15 years or more of their life. Wow. <laughs> Because we let we led a healthy, full lifestyle, and I've never had a broken bone. My sisters haven't had broken bones. Vaccinations, vaccines. Once we were adults and went into our careers, required vaccination. But as as kids, absolutely not. We so had you guys didn't we had whooping cough, and I didn't get sick for five years afterwards. Yeah, that kind of thing. It was a it was a very strange approach but it worked it worked the proof for you guys. Is in the pudding i can't put yeah. science behind it but it worked and now how much traveling other than coming to las cruces how much how much interaction with the world other than let's say lorenzo new mexico did you have not a lot i mean within the u.s you know vacation here or there you know california pennsylvania various things you know statue of liberty those things the normal family things but not on a on a monthly basis i mean it's it's we're home buddies for the most part. You right. know, Las Cruces, Silver City. That's where we are. <laughs> right now, did you um, did you attend public school or did your parents educate you at home? Okay, yep. all Mom, of the children in your family, or yep, every last one of us. And so um, the way that worked is 
mom again took a very unconventional approach it was very unstructured uh definitely definitely took the approach that when we needed to know the information she would teach us and as and as long as you were receptive to okay you you want to learn to read now and so it so she would she would make it possible she would give you the opportunity but you weren't required to read a program so whenever your whenever your brain was ready to read, man, you read. I mean, it was, your a, it was a few any, weeks. Did she have any training in, in education? No, no, no. My my parents are are true outliers. They're, they're, <laughs> they're true. That's our family has been described as counterculture, and I'm not sure that's always good, and I'm not sure that's always bad. But uh, we definitely blaze our own trail. <laughs> well, that's why you fit right here in the Square Peg Podcast, right. Mr. Coffee. Um, no, I'll have to tell you. I think that uh, in popular culture, there's a certain connotation. Um, that goes along with homes, people who homeschool. Certainly. Um, probably for good reason to a certain extent. But I'll tell you, you know, as somebody who, you know, I have a bachelor's degree in history. My wife has a, a degree in sociology and a master's degree in social work. We're educated people. Right. I would not want me to be in charge of my children's education. That's, I, you know, I've heard that a lot and I understand it. But um, at the same time, a kid is going to learn. And my parents never held us back. They weren't the best teachers on the planet, but my sister just achieved her associate's degree in parent medicine, and she'll probably wind up a doctor. But if you didn't want a degree in your whole life, that would be perfectly fine with them, too. They took a very, very open approach to their kids' education, and I'm biased, but I right. think it's awesome because it allowed for so much personal growth and freedom. You weren't you weren't stifled into into a single way of thinking man it was whatever god put in your bag whatever was packed into your bag and the all of those kids are so different that man we're going to wind up completely different places on the edu- education spectrum right and that's okay i was think, okay with them <laughs> i don't think the thing that that scares me the most would be the high-end stuff it would be the basic stuff like literally teaching somebody how to read how to do long division Things like that. I mean, you would think, well, you know, if you're teaching first graders, first graders are six years old. All you got to do is be smarter than the six uh, than a six year old, right? Well, no, because the skill of teaching somebody to read, the skill of teaching somebody how to do, and I don't think long division is a first grade thing. I think it's more third and fourth grade. But right. those are the things that would be pretty terrifying to me, and and it would give me a lot of concern. But you know, people figure out how to do it, and I know that yep. you know I, I interact. Um, uh, in this community with some families um, through some recreational activities who are part of a homeschool community. And, and it's not just you teaching in your home. There's a lot of cooperative uh, things. Was that your experience as exactly. well? Exactly. Um, hugely so. So it was very much less book learning and much more hands-on. So the business was a huge driving force in our education. You needed to do long division because you needed to sit down and help dad balance the books at the end of the month. And you needed to, you, and he, he had, he had us right by his side in the business constantly working with it. You're at the market. So you had a very Someone, practical, very practical approach, man. At, at times it could be brutal because you're a kid and you're expected to perform at this level. That's an adult level at times, but that, that, real life pressure made for an unbelievably good environment to learn and to excel. And so it wasn't, well, you need to learn how to do long division now. Here's why I need to figure out how to solve this problem. Now let's go get the answer. Well, and you know, you just kind of reminded me of something I thought about before. And, you know, going back to, you said you're 26 years old, going back to when I started going to the farmer's market regularly 10 years ago, um, we've got your sister Havila here in the in the in the studio and you've got younger siblings you have other siblings oh i know have kind of come and gone uh doing the, the farmer's market thing yep, done the rotation through the market <laughs> one of the things that i have found 
uh, most impressive is, you know, kids going through adolescence in the teen years are not the most, I don't say the most social, but they don't want to talk to adults and they don't want to be responsible representatives of a family business. And, and one of the things that uh, I've, I've found going, you know, this decade or so is that that hasn't been an issue for you and it hasn't been an not issue for all. your sisters. You guys seem to really have a natural kind of gift of gab and, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it's natural and if your parents all got lucky, but I mean, it is what it is and it's worked for you. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's hilarious, but my peer group is a solid 30 years older than I am. And right. it always has been. <laughs> well, let me tell you, my wife makes fun of me, but that's kind of, my wife and I have joked for years, we've been married almost 20 years. We tend to end up a lot of places where people my parents' age are. And it hasn't been with the pandemic. I know you've noticed my family kind of took off for a while. We just started kind of coming back. Uh, there's a, a, I don't even, it's not even a booth. It's a circle of chairs. Um, a man named Randy Harris of the Great Conversation runs just west of where the Bank of the West is. He has a little quote yeah. of the day. Yeah, they're, and they're on, the, on the mall. Yep, right yeah. there. It, it's, you know, Peter Goodman's always there with his wife. And there are people oh, yeah, in their Peter. 60s and 70s. <laughs> And um, I, my wife makes fun of me because I'm happy going to the farmer's market and sitting down there all Saturday morning and talking to people 30 years older than me, and I'm as happy as can be. Exactly. You well, know? I'll throw a curveball at you. That's what mom and dad used to call church. You're sitting around fellowshipping with people that are like-minded, and you walk away from that encouraged, inspired, ready to go take on the world because you were bouncing ideas off of people that might you might not necessarily agree with, but they stretched you. And it was a, it's an environment, a fertile environment that, that you just thrive in. And that's what my parents have always strived to build through the business. The business, you know, has to make our living. But what it's really there for is to create this environment that, that fosters the conversation, that, that supports the community, that does the things that life is really about, not just making money. Well, you know, you, um, you really kind of hit on something that, you know, you and I, uh, for the listeners out there, there was a little bit of a snafu. Uh, ben Ben flew in with his sister, but didn't have the rides. So had to go pick him up, which of course is not a big deal. Uh, but we talked a little bit about the kind of background and my ideas for for getting the the show going and starting this podcast, and me kind of straddling two worlds and things like that. And you talking about you know having conversations with people you might not always uh, surround yourself with. Um, one of my big struggles, and I think that people who work in my field of public safety tend to do, is we circle the wagons and we exist in echo chambers. And that doesn't do anything for anybody. And people people outside of my field of work and people who have a different worldview than I do, do the same thing. And you don't make any progress that way. Now, going back to the, the farmer's market and Living Harvest Bakery, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what percentage of, of your income or what percentage of Living Harvest Bakery's business comes from the Las Cruces farmer's market? I don't know a percentage closely, but it's the vast majority of it. Really? So the market is is our bread and butter there. Um, no we pun have, intended. <laughs> yeah, pun intended. <laughs> um, but we have like a toucan, and we used to have the the Mountain View Co-op before right. they closed. Those were great accounts. Toucan is still a great account. And I used to get your muffins during the week. At, at, um, yes. You know, I would walk long time ago. I would walk into uh, I would walk into Mountain View Market, and and I would almost expect odd looks. Especially if I wasn't wearing a jacket, sure. you know, a sport coat. Yep. If I was just wearing the shirt and tie, and people would kind of see my my attire, my gear I wear on my belt, you know, um, you know, it being kind of you know, it's the it's the co op, it's the exactly. hippie, hippie place, <laughs> exactly. But I, I actually it's a found different vibe. I, was, I, I I kind of felt that I was very you know very welcome, not judged there. But um, you guys always you, know, you guys did have um, 
uh, the muffins there. I don't remember seeing anything else, but bread muffins. Yep, they carried uh, most of our line. With them closing down, that hasn't really had too much of an effect on you, has it? It had a little bit of an effect. I mean, I, I wish they weren't closed. It was right. a, it was it was a hit for sure, but it's not it's not the primary. So those are our our wholesale accounts, which aren't really wholesale. They basically buy it at full retail because we run on such close margins. We we give them you know twenty five cents here or there, but it's not really a wholesale account, and they mark it up from there for the convenience, so that your community can grab it in the middle of the week if they run out. But primarily, right. you're coming down to the market if you're eating my bread every week and buying your bread on the weekend. Now, um, your restaurant. Yep. My wife and my children and I had the uh, benefit of, uh, I want to say maybe three years ago, spend, spend a night in Silver City, uh, maybe two nights as, if, it, if that was the case. And on the way back, we wanted to make a point to get there. And um, it's very simple. Yep. Um, we didn't, you know, we're not people, we're, we're very 21st century, I guess, in the sense that we don't, I don't carry cash unless I'm traveling. Right. Unless I need to tip a porter or someone handling my bags at the airport or something like that. And um, we just didn't think ahead, but you had it all figured out. You had your notebook and I'll be, I'll be darned. Oh, we next, actually wrote it down. You wrote it down. And the next, you said, I'll get you next Saturday at the farmer's market. Right. And I'll be darned. You did. Yep. You knew exactly what I owed you. Oh, well, we've, we've gotten away from that completely. Now, we don't even write it down anymore. <laughs> Is it the honor system? It's absolutely honor system. That's so the coffee shop, I'll, I'll go off on the coffee shop tangent. That is not where we make our living. It's We do the coffee shop because we had the space in the building when we moved into the larger facility. We put the bakery in there. We had a whole bunch of space left over. And we said, well, we're here baking and Fresh baked goods are awesome. We might as well add some coffee, and then you know that kind of devolves into breakfast and a whole bunch of other things that you that come and go. But you know, you at least have eggs and sausage and and baked goods. And uh, it, the coffee shop has been more of an experiment than a money maker. And and going through the pandemic, you're probably not aware of this, but going through the pandemic, that's even that's ex- the pandemic accelerated that. So you know, state cop comes in, our health inspector, who we're good friends with. Uh, come in and say, well, you're basically not allowed to be open right now. And we're like, well, what, do, what can we do? And, you know, they were making all the changes. So we have a buffet there, the little tiny buffet, and we were going to have to serve our clients, you know, put the food on their plates. Everyone has to wear a mask and sit outside. We developed, you know, the outdoor eating area real quick and, you know, doing the normal restaurant things. And we kind of stepped back from that when, when the state police and, and our health inspector came in and said, this is not what this is not the vibe of the coffee shop. We don't have to have this thing, so we're going to go crazy here. We've always it's always been a little bit of an experiment because we wanted to do it. It's fun. So, let's let's go crazy. And so we took the cash register off the counter and we said, "Guys, it's free. Come in, eat. It's a fellowship hall." And that way, in theory, donations. Donations if you want, but we really our heart was at the point that we do not expect you to leave a dime. We're going to run this thing until we run out of money, and then we'll close it because we're not depending on it. We can do that, and we're going to have fun in the process. And let me tell you what an unbelievably cool ride this has been for from you know two months into the pandemic till now. It's still going on. It's still a huge experiment, but just the study in humanity has been absolutely fascinating. I'm glad you brought that up. I was hesitant because you and I, have, we've had this conversation a couple months ago when I started coming back to the market. And I asked you yep. how you guys were dealing with, with the pandemic. And, yep. you know, um, you, you guys run a relatively off-the-grid operation. Yep. Um, and, and you obviously weren't hesitant to explain it to me, but it wasn't necessarily something I was going to bring up to broadcast to the entire Internet. Um, just because I, out of respect for you, I didn't know. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm glad you brought that well, up. Well, this, I, I want to say some of my American blood comes out in this. 
I, I tend to be very ruggedly individualistic, which is something we've gotten away from in this country and blaze our own trail. And when it came to the pandemic, it was a lot more, well, why are you telling the American people how and what they should be thinking? You should be educating them, giving them information, and letting each individual, each individual community, each city, each county, each state, kind of do their own risk assessments and find that line. Because you can't top-down manage this thing. It's so convoluted and so complex. You need to be making these these almost life and death decisions, those are best made on an individual level. And what what we're striving to do there at the coffee shop and just in life in general is create, again, an environment that allows people the freedom to make their own free decisions so that if you're in the coffee shop and you're not wearing a mask, that's because you decided that because you are a smart person, you're a smart, free American, and you are making that decision for yourself. And then the person that's standing next to you, hopefully six feet away, is wearing their mask, and right. they, they have a different risk profile. And they're and if they really need to be staying at home, they need to make that decision. Yeah. Not being, I I know there's there's the the bigger governmental picture that I'm not going to push back against. But on a more individual level, especially in the valley, you're such a small community center. Is like we're not going to stop serving our community. Right. We have we have a, a privilege there in that we could do this because it is so out of the way and it's such a tight knit community and you have the space and the freedom the ability to to allow people to make these more personal decisions and that goes back to the 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 more country the more the more rural lifestyle right. that we've always enjoyed where i mean basically what we were doing wouldn't have worked in LA or in San Francisco or in New York just it wouldn't have been possible but because of our unique situation, it was like, oh, cool, this is a neat and, study and, in humanity. And, and given the makeup of New Mexico, I know that early on, you know, my family have been, uh, I don't use the term conservative to describe my family very often, but when it comes to observing COVID protocols, we were very conservative. But one of the early things that I noticed was that there are a lot of places in New Mexico that are so rural, and there's such little, there's such little uh, movement county to county exactly. that um, some of the restrictions did seem... Maybe a little bit uh, too heavy, but I, I want to just touch on something about my experience uh, at, at your coffee shop. And we spoke a little bit about this on the way over here to the studio. Um, as somebody who grew up in the United States as not a Christian, uh, my formative years in the 1980s, I, mean, I was born in 1974. So my elementary school and, and middle school years were in the 1980s during the Reagan era. That was the rise of, the rise of you know Jerry Falwell and the religious right. And, you know, so somebody somebody my age who's grown up when I did in America is not a Christian. My uh, my view of Protestantism in the United States has always been one of it's the Jerry Falwell. It's the kind of angry, judgmental yep. Um, yep. and very destructive, in my opinion. <laughs> and one thing I'll tell you is you guys had it's as simple as Microsoft Word printed like pieces of paper on the wall. In your coffee shop. Exactly. With Bible quotes and... Not just, just Bible quotes, quotes from Gandhi, quotes from what you wouldn't expect to be right. Christian-oriented people, but they got things right. And I found it to be so... I, I, I don't want uh, to be disrespectful and say surprising, but knowing that you're a family whose faith in Christianity is very, so extremely important to you, so central to who you are, um, I was pleasantly surprised to see such what I would call such a soft message um and such an inclusive and non-judgmental 
And that really, like I said, for somebody who grew up in the United States um, as somebody other than a Christian, it was a very, very pleasant and welcoming and non-judgmental experience. Who were the crowds surrounding Jesus? Who felt the most comfortable hanging around Jesus? He was hanging out with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the sinners. There you go. If you're not attracting that group of people, I'm sorry, but you're not, you're not putting Jesus in the world. So are I, you calling me a, a prostitute, a tax collector? No, nah, not quite. Or one of the three? Not quite. <laughs> not I, quite. I don't think you. so. <laughs> I had to say that to you, but I know where you're getting. Now, we're going to have to close things out here, Ben. With your, you being the face, if you will, of the, the largest portion of the uh, Living Harvest Bakery's business, and you're pursuing a pilot, you know, a career in, in commercial piloting, what's the future of, of Living Harvest Bakery uh, in general uh, that you can see? Boy, uh, in the in the midst or coming towards hopefully the end of a pandemic, that that I haven't had a you know a worse answer yet. I mean, I can't see very far down the road. It's it's not a comfortable answer, but hopefully, right in the center of God's will, whatever He has for the business, you know, it's His. It belongs to Him wherever He wants to take it, and that at times isn't very comfortable. But uh, we're going to continue to pursue the the idea of building our community, being part of our community, serving our community those people around us creating an environment where people can grow and flourish. And that's hopefully where Living Harvest is going to go. As far as me personally, hopefully I'll be flying an airplane somewhere and be sharing Jesus in another country someday. <laughs> and do you ever think of a, your piloting as maybe a distribution measure for Living Harvest Bakery's products? Probably not. That would be awesome, but probably not. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. Ladies and gentlemen, this uh, has been a very, very pleasurable 45 minutes uh, with Benjamin Coffey. If you're in Las Cruces, Doniana County, or even El Paso, come down on Saturday mornings. Uh, Living Harvest Bakery is in the area now designated for all that seems to be all the food vendors, kind of on the town square there. And Benjamin, I have to say, in all honesty, this has been, this is what, the 22nd or 23rd episode uh, that I've recorded. This has been about as enjoyable a 45-minute conversation as I've had. I, and I, I sincerely mean that. That's awesome. Um, it's flown by. I really enjoy talking. Yeah, I knew it was to going you. to. We could do and, several um, more. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, Benjamin Coffey of Living Harvest Bakery. This has been uh, the Square Peg Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and I hope you're going to tune in next week uh, for another great episode, I hope, of the Square Peg Podcast. We'll see you next week. Proudly produced by Las Cruces Today.com and Bravo Mike Communications.